everyone, and welcome back to American Indian Graduate Center's Inspired Podcast. This is your host, Dr. Corey Still. Everyone, today I am extremely honored again to be joined by a set of wonderful speakers, wonderful advocates, and just strong warriors in Indian country. Um, we are joined by two very special guests, American Indian Graduate Center CEO, Angelique Albert, and American Indian Graduate Center board member, Rick Williams. So Angelique has dedicated her professional career in service to tribal communities and creating positive impacts. She has served as the CEO and executive director of American Indian Graduate Center since 2017. Previously, she has served as the executive director of Salish Kootenai College Foundation and as associate director of the National American Indian Business Leaders Organization. Angelique also serves as a member of the Obama Foundation's MBK Alliance Advisory Council and on the American Indian Science and Engineering Society's Tribal Nation Advisory Council. Angelique has a BA in Human Services and an MBA with a special emphasis in American Indian entrepreneurship from Gonzaga University. Rick Williams is a fierce advocate for Native education who previously served as the president and CEO of American Indian College Fund for 15 years. Prior, he also worked at CU Boulder for 17 years where he led several initiatives, including American Indian Upward Bound Program and the University Learning Center. Rick was the first Native scholar to ever graduate from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, receiving a Bachelor's of Arts. He concurrently completed an independent study program at the Native American Rights Fund. He earned a Master's of Arts in Educational Administration from the University of Wyoming Laramie, and has also received an honorary doctorate of humane letters from Roger Williams University in Rhode Island for his work in Native education. Rick has also been awarded a variety of accolades, including the Distinguished Service Award from the University of Colorado Board of Regents and the National Indian Education Association's Indian Educator of the Year in 2005. Rick has served on American Indian Graduate Center's Board of Directors since 2020. So everyone, please thank you all for just showing our guests love, listening to us and sharing space. And Angelique, Rick, thank you both for just being with us here today. Um, and I'm gonna go ahead and just jump right into our question. So I know we gave the bio, but we always love to hear um, your introductions because we know there's so much stuff that we probably left out. So we just wanna share space and give you all space to tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Um, so Angelique, we'll start with you. Good day, Corey. Uh, Dr. Still, thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. Um, I, I don't have a lot to add to that, but I'll say I am a member of the Confederated Salish and Kootenai Tribes from Northwest Montana. And um, over the past 26 years, it's been my pleasure and honor to serve Indian country and, and our tribal communities. Um, like you said, I've been um, in the nonprofit space primarily, but also in the philanthropic space. You know, I've had the, um, the honor of working for foundations, um, but also um, in the, you know, in the nonprofit space. I've also worked in the business sector. I've worked in criminal justice. Um, I've worked in child advocacy. Uh, but most of my work has really been in the tribal education space, tribal higher education, and leadership development. And I am passionate about where I am now here today with American Indian Graduate Center. Um, proud to be the largest scholarship provider to Native students in this country. 
We provide anywhere between 11 million and $15 million annually in direct scholarship dollars to students. Uh, so I feel that really makes a change and is transformative. And, and I know it was to me personally. So it, it means a lot to me to uh, be a part of that change for others. Thank you so much. Rick, um, is there anything you want to add? Oh, midako yapi, lelon betaki lila washtelo. Lakota imachiapi, tatanko hunhaskan, amila huskan imachiapi, Rick Williams. My Lakota name, I'm Oglala Lakota and Northern Cheyenne, and um, we come from a group called the Wafogalas. Um, they were considered to be the wild Indians, that's who my family was. And um, I'm enrolled on the Pine Ridge Reservation um, as an Ogallala Lakota, but I'm also uh, very proud of my Cheyenne background. Um, I, I had uh, a, the greatest opportunity in my life to be a part of uh, Indian education early on in my career when I worked at the University of Colorado at the, uh, at the uh, American Indian Upward Bound Program. The American Indian Upward Bound Program was one of the first um, STEM programs um, that was initiated in the United States back in 1981. Um, and it was there that I, I learned a lot about the needs of, of Indian, Indian students and what worked with them and what didn't work with them. Um, and, and as part of that, I also ran what was called the Tribal Resource Institute in Business Education, um, the Tribes Program, which was sponsored by the Council of Energy Resource Tribes, and also similarly um, worked with, with students uh, to prepare them for college. And it was, it was during those years that I learned probably the most that I know about Indian education and how to be more effective as an educator. Thank you both. And you know, I think both of you have worked and have dedicated so much time and energy and knowledge into the realm of Indian education. And, you know, we know throughout history, um, the tumultuous and traumatic relationship that native communities have often had with the education systems in the United States. And we know that that's often kind of resulted in inaccurate portrayals of native history within K-12 all the way through higher ed. Um, so as those advocates and those leaders in these fields, how, what are some advice or how can educators and institutions and administrations better serve as allies to our communities and help shift the narrative surrounding Native history? Um, I'll go ahead and go, but Corey, you always have a way of asking such powerful questions and, and such a multi-layered question. And, and I think that for me, it's really important to acknowledge um, at this time um, with this question, I think it's important to acknowledge our relatives who are currently um, working on the difficult and emotional responsibility of identifying and bringing home over 5,000 of our children who were left in unmarked and mass graves at these institutions that we refer to as, as boarding schools. And um, I just wanna send my, my love and prayers out to, to everybody. I know that we are 
really at the beginning of this difficult process. Uh, we have a long road ahead of us and uh, not just to bring these 5,000 children home, but to bring all of our children home. And um, just to speak to that, you know, when um, our first, as Indigenous people, our first exposure to education was through residential boarding schools. Um, I think that the name itself uh, speaks to your reference to the inaccurate portrayal of, of history. And I'm gonna, for this case, say inaccurate narrative because I don't really feel like it's history. We're in it today, we're living it today and we're working through it today. So, um, but the name itself, when you say residential boarding school, for many people in the United States, they think of an elite institution where we send our kids off and they have an advantage in, with their education. And that's just not the case. So um, these were institutions that were designed to kill everything native inside of us except our blood. That's what was said. Now we know with what's being uncovered that that's also sometimes came at the expense of the lives of our children. So um, this was such a significant part of our story. And yet only like one small part of our story. Um, if I were to give one piece of advice to our educators, to our institutions, to our administrators at these institutions, um, would be to hire Native professors, hire Native educators, um, incorporate Native curriculum, because with Native professors telling the history, the Native history from a Native perspective, I think that's going to go a long way to... Um, to learning, right? So, so when you learn, um, you're gonna learn difficult things like the boarding school era, but you're also gonna learn very beautiful things. And um, th this is gonna lead to learning. It's gonna lead to understanding. It's gonna lead to acknowledgement of the history. It's gonna start the healing process. It really facilitates allyship and friendship through that understanding. So. For me, um, this is one of my lessons learned. I think it's important to incorporate those Native educators and Native curriculum. This, that's a very interesting question. And, and um, early on in my career, I had the opportunity to do some significant modifications to the educational system and, and to work with Indian kids. And one of the things that I understood um, after working with students who, who came from reservation backgrounds, oftentimes second language speakers, um, was that um, the ability to process information in the context of the Western methodology was, was a challenge for them. And it was part of the way, the reason was is the cognitive processing that went on within their brains. Um, and it was, it, it's important to understand um, the significance of the native natural intelligence of our students and how they learn, particularly in, in, in educational environments. One of the things that I discovered early on was that um, almost all Indian kids have a photographic memory, um, but it's geographically based. And one of the things we were able to do is utilize um, that information 
to modify curriculum and teaching styles and modalities to better meet the needs of, of those children. It, it, it was, I guess the best comparison is we would have kids coming in who um, had, um, were operating in an operating system that might've been, you know, the PC mode and the, the Western mode of, of learning was um, on, um, on Apple. And, and the two were not compatible unless you could figure out a way to bridge the two and um, help students um, through that process. So for example, you could give a, a math student uh, um, a question and, um, and you know, the, 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 the formula to solve it. And every time he's seen that exact question, he would get it right. But if you modified the steps, any of the steps in, in the process, it became a foreign problem for him and, he, and, and they couldn't do it. So, we, you know, what we had to do was change how we taught um, math to, to, to Indian students to have them seek out not necessarily the solutions, but the processes of learning to diagnose the problem. And we had great success with that. Um, it, one of the other things that, that was really important in the programs that, that, that I ran was we utilize peer teaching. Um, oftentimes, instructors who didn't know how to teach the Indian kids, um, some of the kids would get it, um, and they were able to communicate to their peers um, how to, to to work with you know the information to, to be able to utilize it and comprehend it. Um, so th those kinds of challenges have never been fully addressed in the educational system. Um, what I know is that there are significant issues that um, have been identified and we know solutions to them, but they haven't been implemented. And I think that's probably the greatest tragedy that we have in education going forward is not, um, not being able to utilize the information that we know and capitalize on that to improve um, the systems that our students are in. Um, one of, for example, we have a brand new um, school in, in Colorado called the American Indian uh, Academy. And the kids are doing absolutely marvelous in there because they've incorporated different learning modalities, different learning styles. They understand, they use peer teaching, they use uh, experiential learning. They do all of the things that you would need to, to better um, have that student have success um, within that within the system. I think you both speak to major points. You know, when we talk about how do we influence and integrate these learning modalities and these narratives and help. And one of the things that, you know, and Angelique that you talked about was, you know, allyship. And then we also have this, um, this concept of not only we need allyship, but we need accomplices. And I think we've done that excellently, excellently, in my opinion, within Indian country, because, you know, organizations like American Indian Graduate Center, we were created to address these self-identified needs in our communities. And not only was that like our initial mission, but we have seen so many other Native organizations form out of similar needs or similar um, kind of roots so in both of y'all's opinion, how have these native led organizations influenced the field of education for native scholars? 
navigating this, uh, the U.S. educational system? For me, I think, you know, when I think of American Indian Graduate Center, we were birthed out of the self-determination era. So at a time, you know, this was 50 years ago, uh, we seen an influx of, for us, initially, we funded a lot of Native lawyers, we funded a lot of Native educators, uh, that comes on the, uh, you know, right at the end of the boarding school era, we needed Native educators to, to educate our Native youth and begin that, um, that healing process, uh, but also needed tribal lawyers to fight for sovereignty rights and to fight for um, treaty rights. And um, so I see those, those trends, but also moving forward, you know, when you're talking about addressing those self-identified needs of our tribal communities, we've seen trends over the years at American Indian Graduate Center. You know, we've seen, um, you know, us funding, I think for us personally, we meet the students where they are. And so we fund the students, um, we fund the students um, based on the needs that they, that they have. So, you see a lot of funding. We have funded a lot of students in the health fields at a time when we needed that. Then we seen a trend of funding environmental sciences at a time when we need to protect our natural resources. And also uh, most recently you see cultural sustainability through language preservation, culture, cultural preservation. And it's, it's really exciting to me um, to see students taking STEM money or agriculture money and pursuing an education that allows them to take tribal ecological knowledge and um, revive traditional food systems, right? So to me, that's powerful. To me, that speaks to addressing the needs of our community and utilizing and shifting that educational system in a way that speaks to our personal needs. Um, some other things that come to mind of, you know, what have we done to help kind of change the landscape? And for me, it's beyond that. You know, it's not just the educational system. It's how does that impact our communities? So, and I think that the best reflection of that would be um, the students. You look at Fawn Sharp, who is the president of the National Congress of American Indians, and then also Deb Holland, right? So she's the Secretary of, Inter um, of Interior and launched an investigation uh, to the boarding schools from the very department that initiated those boarding schools. So to me, that is so, um, that's very impactful. I think that um, the work that we do as, um, nonprofits and advocates, and you may not see the, the, um, the payoff right away, but you see you know, how we're impacting the educational system and you're seeing how we are using that as a tool to empower our students, transform um, and transform that into something that serves our tribal communities. I think I'm going to use myself as an example in this particular case, because um, when I started my undergraduate degree, um, it was me and only one other American Indian at the University of Nebraska. When I graduated, there was about 70 Indian students on campus, and we all related well to each other. 
And, and I think that having access it was, it was very critical in the early eras of, of the development of, of success, successful people coming out of the educational institutions. But beyond that, once you got a bachelor's degree, the opportunities were very limited. And so 10 years later, I had the opportunity to access resources to be able to go to graduate school. And it was only because of the American Indian Graduate Center that, that I was able to do that. Um, that was kind of like the tipping point in my career because once I got that advanced degree, um, it opened up doors for me that um, were absolutely remarkable. And I got an immediate increase in salary at the University of Colorado and, and I got a new job and, and I was able, but the, the most important part about that was that by creating access and, and, and then the success and then having um, the opportunities after graduation to influence um, what was happening and supporting American Indian students to further their careers. Um, we didn't have a lot of role models back then. And today, uh, because of the work of places like the American Indian Graduate Center, um, not only do we have wonderful stories, but we've got excellent role models throughout, throughout every discipline. And um, to me, that is, was the critical component point um, or the critical tipping point when when those began to happen that made us comfortable in higher education and and successful and rick i think you know you you talked about an excellent point there of this really illustrating this relationship that native scholars and these advocacy organizations have and these community organizations have. Um, and you know, it's, a lot of times Native scholars, even in today's field or in today's society are consistently facing an equitable access to higher ed. Um, you know, we're, we're having, we're still seeing instances of these spaces not being built or not being inclusive of not just native students, but but many students of color. How would you all describe the role of these advocacy organizations in breaking down those barriers? And why is that work so critical to empower our native scholars who are pursuing education? And I know this this might be a little bit hard as the, that's a deep one, but you know, I, I think it's work that you both have been in and involved around. So Angelique, I see, um, I'll go ahead and pass this one over to you. Okay. Um, for me, it's really <clears throat> addressing those inequities first and foremost. And, you know, Rick spoke to access, right? Access being one of the, the largest hurdles, access to funding, access to support services. Um, we have learned early on, I mean, funding is the number one um, access issue for our students, even though we provide so much money um, to our students annually, it still doesn't meet the need. So we only fund about 18% of the students who apply each year. So there's still, there's still a big gap there. Um, but also, it's not enough just to provide um, the funding, the scholarship dollars, you know, it, we, they need support, you know, to navigate 
these educational systems that they're not accustomed to. You know, when I was a TCU student, it was wonderful. Our, you know, the Salish Kootenai College, it was, you had that sense of community. It made sense to me. It was a, a place, like you, Rick mentioned, you know, place-based is it's so important to us as Indigenous people. And I had that space. I was on my land. I, we, we did social activities, um, cultural things, and, and then to go into a university system that was so foreign, I think just being able to support the, to provide those support systems to students, um, that's, that's been one of the things that has really helped to increase our retention and graduation rates is really helping them navigate resources on, on at institutions. But so that's number one, what we do, you know, addressing those inequities as much as we can. But when you think of um, on a on a broader scale, what are we doing, you know, when you were talking about advocacy, I, I think about that. And I think that um, collectively, we have a stronger voice, a stronger voice for our students. So we partner, you know, we partner with um, as, as many people as we can in Indian country, because, you know, whether that's NIEA, ACES, the College Fund, IEI, I feel like we have a stronger voice, you know, when we collectively advocate for our students. So we do that. And I think that that's, um, that's very, that that's so important. But also if we're not um, aligned with our, um, maybe in, our, in the same industry, we lift each other up, you know, when we see the great work that others are doing in Indian country, we lift them up. So if we're not um, establishing formal partnerships, then we are lifting them up. You know, the great work that Illuminative is doing, Indian Collective is doing, we lift them up. So um, I think that's, that's critically important to not be so stuck in your own world and, and silo yourself, but to connect to others and lift each other up for the benefit of our students and, and our people. This is an interesting question because we know tribal colleges can create support systems and, 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 and effectively help our students, but we don't see that same kind of, um, you know, you can get access and, and sometimes it's, you know, undergraduate, it's easy to get access. Graduate school is significantly more burdensome because of um, the two biggest hurdles that I faced in my my career were um, the GRE and the LSAT, and neither one of them were a significant measure of my intelligence or ability um, because they were biased. Um, and typically, when you get into graduate programs, they have an inherent bias in there that that is that um, really works against your success. So you have to find ways to maneuver around those kinds of biases to create success. And the greater, the greater number that we have going through these institutions that, that, that create that bias, um, we're, we're starting to see changes in those institutions and modifications in, in how they, um, they um, teach and, and, and help students get through. Um, so I think that, you know, we're, 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 at a very important point where we have to continue to get higher education institutions to be more responsive and responsible to not just access, but to graduation of American Indian students. And if that means special accommodations, whatever those are, and it, it, isn't, it isn't like special ed or anything like that, it's the ability to understand how 
that student is going to be to, could have the greatest success in your institution. Higher education institutions haven't done that, and yet they're the institutions that should be doing should be leading the charge, and especially um, the land grant institutions who got their founding uh, based off of uh, land grants from stolen Indian land. I mean, they they're the ones who should be leading the charge up front and saying, hey, this is how we're going to be uh, uh, responsive to um, this issue about how we, be we came into being and we wanna make a difference um, and, and, and make up for all these lost years of in, you know, lack of opportunities for students. So I think you know, it, it, all, it, it goes back to this whole thing about, um, you know, they, there's this there's this idea that um, because a graduate student is not successful, that they, it, that it's it's like they're the problem, but that's not the case. Um, a, an American Indian graduate student at a higher education institution has already demonstrated their capabilities of being successful learners. It's the higher education institution that is incapable of developing that, that, that person further, that's the problem. Um, and we don't recognize that. We, we let higher education institutions off the hook by saying, well, you know, Indians are, you know, Indians have trouble learning and, it, it, you know, and that's false. That's a falsehood that we have to, 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 to keep focusing on because uh, what it, it simply means is those institutions haven't created the right kinds of opportunities and support for students to be successful. See, what what the listeners can't see is all of us just like nodding our heads and like cheering because I think both of us you know we we agree so much with those statements Rick and I think you know again we're we're really kind of centering this conversation around allyship and accomplices and you know talking about hey we need to be able to collectively advocate collectively use our voices and be able to really say hey you know these institutions, it's not our responsibility to do this work. It's your responsibility to make sure this work is getting done. You know, it's your responsibility to make sure that these proper policies and things are in place. And, you know, I think while we continue to fight like that within the educational realm, um, you know, especially in the past year, we have seen some major help come from the philanthropic realm. So, you know, in this past year, the uh, philanthropist Mackenzie Scott has awarded unrestricted gifts to a variety of native organizations. Um, you know, giving them freedom to really implement best practices and strategies that serve our communities. Um, in both of y'all's opinion, how can this kind of unrestricted support impact the landscape of native education, both just today and for future generations? And how can these unrestricted givings create that lasting change? Um, for me, that answer is very simple. Um, one of the things that, that we've learned over time is that we are quite capable of designing and implementing programs that work best for our students. And when we are giving the opportunity with an unrestricted gift, we can better design um, effective programs that are going to accomplish what our goal is, and that's success. 
when we are hamstrung by restricted gifts, it's, it, it, it makes it more difficult for us to be creative and, and um, create models of success in, in, in higher education. So an un unrestricted gift is the best gift. I agree with you, Rick. Um, I think that Mackenzie Scott really set a precedent that all of, all of philanthropy needs to be looking towards and, and following suit. Um, of course, it's important to always vet um, your nonprofits that you're looking at funding um, to make sure that they are transparent and doing the great work that they say they're doing. Um, but beyond that, it's, it's really empowering the leaders who have been doing this. And for us, you know, we have such a strong board and strong leaderships and, and we have staff who have been doing this for, you know, we have staff members that have been there over 20 years, you know, so we know best practices. We know what it takes to serve our students. And oftentimes we're not able to serve them in the best way possible because we are trying to accomplish maybe a joint goal of this or a joint goal of this you know, instead of really focusing on the express needs of the students, you know, we're talking to the students daily, we're serving the students annually, like, what do you need? And to Rick's earlier point, you know, it's like, we need, you know, help with GRE, with LSAT, we need, you know, place-based learning, we need learning teaching modalities that, that speak to us. So this type of unrestricted funding allows us to create um, the best supports for our students. So I think this is the wave of the future. I think this is what we should be looking, looking for moving forward and um, gratitude, gratitude to, to Mackenzie Scott and all of the other donors, small donors, you know, every dollar matters. So it's not just the big Mackenzie Scott gifts. It's, it's every dollar. We get $5 gifts, you know, and that means just as much to us because it allows us that freedom to, um, to, to fund the students in a way that, that best meets their needs. And I think, I mean, that's a perfect explanation. You know, both of you articulated it very well. Like, we know we know how to support our own. <laughs> I mean, we know how to do it right. Um, it, it sounds very simple, but it is, a, it is an effective strategy. Um, and every dollar does count. You know, I, I think I, I think we said this last season, but, you know, I'm a recipient. I'm not only work for the uh, American Union Graduate Center, I'm a recipient of the American Union Graduate Center. And I think there are so many people out there that um, can say that in one way, shape or form, American Indian Graduate Center has impacted their, not only their educational journey, but their life journey. And, you know, I know we have listeners who, you know, might be thinking, well, what, what can I do? Like, what is, what can I do? I'm, you know, I might not be able to um, financially contribute, but is there something that I can do to help empower our Native scholars. What advice, what final piece of advice would you give to those listeners um, to help them become allies and, or, or maybe even become accomplices with us in this work? The importance of allies is critical to the success of what we're, we're doing. First of all, we're so under-resourced financially that 
it limits the ability to do all of the things that need to be done. And so when, when we have somebody who's, who, who has chosen to ally with us, um, it's a gift. It's a gift of, of their time or it's a gift of their money, or, but it's a real gift to us. But what we need is more allies. And so one of the things that, that um, um, we need an army of allies and perhaps one of the, the things that I would encourage allies to do is to bring more people along with them. Um, identify 10 of their friends and say, hey, if we're gonna make a change and a real positive change, we can really do something good. Um, come with me, come with me on this journey um, and help, let's, you know, let's, let's, let's change. Let's change America. Let's change the history of, of Indian education and turn it into something that is very positive because we have the ability to do that collectively working together and our allies are critical to that success. For me, um, this question makes me think of, you know, where we are in this country and, and, you know, this racial awakening that's going on. And for us, I feel like the most pervasive form of racism for us is invisibility and erasure of our stories. And so uh, for me, really, I would ask my allies, if you're in a space, um, help make space for us to come into that space, you know, invite us into that space, invite us to the table, make space for us, create opportunities for us to share our voices, to be heard, help us to share our stories, um, allyship and friendship, I feel like comes from learning and understanding and, and we're, we're, we're really in that moment right now in this country. Um, like Rick, like Rick said, you know, partner with us, become an ambassador for us and um, um, join us on this journey of tribal higher education. Uh, for us, I, I do want to say um, that uh, a thank you because I know some, some institutions out there are doing it right. Some of the higher educational institutions have native curriculum, have native professors, have native peer groups, you know, the native support systems and, and social events even, you know? So thank you for doing it right. Thank you for doing it well. Um, and then also I would say, um, you know, to other partners out there like HSF, API Scholars, the Hunt Institute, and Obama Foundation, you know, recently making space for us to be able to share our stories, share our voice, lift us up. So it, it doesn't have to come in the form of financial support. It can be just helping to share our story and lift us up as well. So, um, that's that's my input that's my request and that's my invite um partner with us and and invite us to the table thank you both so much angelique rick you know we we couldn't have said it better um and i to all of our listeners i i hope you accept that invitation i hope you accept that invitation to share our story and continuing to empower our native scholars across the united states and across the world um, so again, I just want to say thank you to you both for, for giving of your time and sharing space with us. Um, and to all of our listeners, I, I hope, I hope you took some knowledge from today's podcast. I know I did. And so, um, uh, I, again, you all can't see us, but we're all like, well, we did, we were all, we're all on camera saying, we did, we did. Um, 
we invite you back again here next week as we have another set of great panelists as we continue these discussions and we continue sharing space and we continue to become inspired. Um, so again, we will see you next week. And as always, I'm your host, Dr. Corey Still. Well,